Are you still trying to reinvent the wheel? Tens of thousands of professionals have attempted to solve the same challenges you're dealing with right now. Some of them failed, some of them succeeded. But very few of them succeeded and captured their proven approach to share it with the world. Mike Kunkel is one of these very few. He has been an enabler for over 30 years and has captured his proven approach in an extremely successful framework called the Building Blocks of Sales Enablement. Mike and I have now translated the Building Blocks of Sales Enablement framework into a learning experience that helps a new generation of enablement teams fast-track their journey to sales enablement mastery. Our combination of group coaching sessions, actionable video lessons, materials, resources, networking opportunities and templates makes mastering sales enablement best practices faster and easier than it has ever been before. So if you want to stop reinventing the wheel, maximize business impact and fast-track your career, consider joining a growing community of enablers at the Building Blocks of Sales Enablement Learning Experience. To learn more, visit goffwd.com slash blocks. That's g-o-f-f-w-d.com slash b-l-o-c-k-s. Welcome to the State of Sales Enablement Podcast with your host, Felix Kruger. Insights and actionable advice from B2B marketing and sales experts that share what it takes to achieve sales enablement excellence. Welcome to another edition of this month in sales enablement. My name is Felix Kruger and I am joined once again by sales enablement royalty straight out of Palm Springs, <laughs> California, Ooh. Devin McDermott. Hello, Felix. How are you? I'm very well. Just moved into a new place, as I told you earlier, and I am just a new person, new location, new person. <laughs> Absolutely love it. Oh, it's the best feeling in the world. I'm so happy for you. Thank you so much. And what's been happening in California since we last spoke? Not too much. It's been very windy, very warm, but I've been home watching Eurovision. So like, that's where my <laughs> head is at. I'm like fascinated by it. Amazing. Have you been watching? No, ironically, I'm obviously from Europe, but it seems to be bigger outside of Europe than it actually is in Europe. Really? But I heard the Ukraine one. Yes. Which is great. It's a nice thing for them. They were absolutely terrific. There were some other amazing acts as well. I may send you some good ones to check out, but it was it was well worth it. Awesome. All right. I'll check it out. I'll check it out. Yeah. Not quite Coachella, but... Not quite. Very different, but also amazing. What keeps me engaged over here is the election in Australia. So Ooh. I hope things won't go as crazy as they were in America the last election, which is a tough act to follow, but... I hope this for you as well. Yeah, let's not digress. One thing that I learned on LinkedIn is that the three worst topics to talk about is politics, religion, and whether or not cold calling is death. <laughs> that sounds about right. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So let's jump right into the show. And we've got a whole lot of things to cover. We, as always, talk about the latest insights from the State of Sales Enablement podcast. We had a bunch of amazing guests this month. We will talk about, for the first time, about a couple of books that we have read. I think it's always worthwhile discussing those and any awesome finds and, and new releases that have come out. We will also talk about some reports that have come out and social media buzz as always. So let's kick things off with the very first 
clip from the State of Sales Enablement podcast featuring Mike Kunkel. Mike came on the show to talk about buyer acumen and he had, uh, I don't know what it is, but this man has analogies for days. He never seems to run out and <laughs> I love it. every single one of them seems to be so spot on. And let's take a listen to one of them. Attempting to build personas and develop deep acumen for your buyers internally, talking just to internal people, is a lot like asking a bunch of 20-something single men what women really want in a relationship. I think that could not be more spot on and unfortunately something that still happens a lot. Mm -hmm. You have a little bunch of people that aren't market-facing, talking or dreaming up buyer personas, then using that as a basis for really important strategic decisions. And I think that buyer acumen that is being built by frontline salespeople and also by actually talking to customers, which seems to be a low-hanging fruit if you actually want to know <laughs> what's going on in your market, I think becomes more and more something that is on the agenda of sales organizations and mm -hmm. marketing organizations as well. I think his analogy is spot on and definitely something that is worth considering next time you've got those sort of meetings. But I'm curious to know, Devin, how is that typically handled from your experience in the organizations that you've been working for or dealing with? And do you think there's still an element of working with stereotypes and basing strategic decisions on those stereotypes? Yeah, I've seen it both ways, right? Where a company's like, oh, we're going to make some assumptions. We have our technical person and it's this like emoji of someone and it's just totally made up, totally basic, nothing that's going to fuel any sort of meaningful connection or outreach. And then I've seen it the other way where we're actually sitting and engaging with customers. And I, I don't understand the hesitation because to your point, like buyers are people too. And sometimes we treat them like they're these glass figurines that we put up on a shelf. And it's like, if you look at them the wrong way, they're going to break, they're going to go away. They're not going to want to work with us. And it's like, no, they want you to talk to them. They want a better experience. And it's, it's really interesting to find the balance between like, you're not going to scare them away. If anything, it's going to fortify your relationship because you're going to them as a trusted partner and even going out into the industry to talk to real people, real buyers, real companies. It makes such an incredible difference. So yes, I've seen it both ways. The super high level, surface level personas that kind of come out of a box are pretty much useless. You're checking the box on your sales asset list at that point. Mm. Do you think that's just an ongoing thing like that kind of occurs randomly or are there certain structures you can put in place to actually systemize that and increase the opportunity to actually gain those insights that are crucial for your strategy? Yeah. And again, like this isn't something I typically run in an organization, but I'm running point with our CX team or our marketing team or product marketing. But I think there are those key moments when you're going to market with a new initiative, a new process, a new product, where you really want to understand, are we going up against a new audience? Do we need to learn about an entirely new group? That's a very curated experience. But we have so much technology now, like Gong and other resources where you can hear straight from the horse's mouth every day if you want. How are the buyers feeling? What do they care about? What are they doing? How are they feeling about our product, about our services? So I think there's that ad hoc approach to like listening in and kind of casually observing what our buyers want. And then those more purposeful programs to really understand how is this going to impact a potential buyer that I could be working with? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think also something that I see more and more organizations actually considering is being more intentional about win-loss analysis. Big time. Also doing it from both sides. So doing a win-loss analysis internally, 
with the sales team to talk about what's been happening during that conversation. And then also talking to the buyers about what happened on their end, how the decisions are being made within the organization and so on. So I think aiming to have a certain amount of these conversations each month is time well spent because you're always at the poles of what's happening, you know, rather than just basing everything on hearsay and a bunch of 20-something year old men (laughs) spinning together. (laughs) It's always interesting, too, to see like the internal win or loss review and then what the customer says. And it's like, Mm. how connected were you to this process, salesperson? So I do like to see that. And that's always super effective. Awesome. Let's move on to the next snippets that we have from this month's interviews. And that one was with a sales trainer here in Australia, Mark McInnes. He's really well known in the region and beyond. And he specifically specializes in the self-development space, which is also a topic that is always hot because I think there's hardly any organization that really can claim that they have this part sorted. And if you go by the conversations that are going on on LinkedIn about self-development, you can definitely tell that there's no consensus on how you approach it right and what the right thing to do is. So it's always great to hear from a practitioner that does it every day on what works right now and what doesn't. Let's take a listen. So if you've got 30 SDRs in your team, and I'm using 30 because it's an easy number, sack 10 of them. Get the money that you spend on that 10 and redistribute it to the 20, okay? And redistribute it in the way of increased wages, increased tools, not just sales enablement mass tools, but the tools to help them do the job and training so that there's a high level of prestige and less of a rush to get out of an SDR role. All right. So Mark's argument here is that he thinks it is more productive to actually create a career path for SDRs in order to build those skill sets that are necessary to be really good at it and to really have those people being brand ambassadors that deliver a good experience in the first interaction with the market. How's the SDR role handled from your experience? Like, is it still a question of really junior salespeople just paving their way to becoming an AE? Or is it in some cases a role that is really something that uh, somebody pursues longer term? Like, what is your experience? Yeah, my experience has been it's a transition to your AE role, a transition to a strategic accounts role. It is not something anybody wants to stay in for a long period of time, A, because it's really hard, and B, and I, you know, the whole Mark interview is awesome because he talks about like, we're not spending time building these, the seller acumen, building the skills needed to be even better in that role. And he talks about three-stage or three-layered career ladder for the SDR role that really levels that person up, builds their skills, because this is the first interaction your buyers have with your company and you want it to be really great. And so, you know, obviously, like I've worked with amazing SDRs. Our current SDR team in my organization are just like so incredible, but it really is a role that is underappreciated. And it's something that it's kind of like, oh, just passing through, moving on to greener pastures. But there's so much value. And he talks to you about like up their salary, give them a reason to stay in this role and continue to nurture the function, be creative. I think it's a missed opportunity. I really kind of took a different look at the SDR role and, and how that role could be elevated after listening to this interview. So lots of nuggets of goodness there. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree. I think the notion of SDRs actually being the first point of contact with the company oftentimes and yeah. Essentially, them being brand ambassadors is really important, right? And I think 
the mechanics behind somebody just going through the numbers or working towards the numbers and not really caring about the longer term relationship. Yeah. That can be absolutely uh, toxic for an organization that is very self-driven and trying to build a brand and market. I've certainly experienced that here in Australia a lot of times where I've been contacted by an SDR who didn't do a very good job in reaching out, like very standardized and very formulaic. And that was the first experience with that brand. I might have heard about the brand later on in a more positive context, but right. at the same time, it seems like a massively missed opportunity. So I think increasing the salary and providing a career path seem to be the most obvious options in that context. Yeah. I've only worked with a handful of like career SDRs and they are incredible. And they're moving on to other companies building SDR functions. And some of them are not even SDR managers. But again, it's it's an art. You have to be a very talented person to be a successful SDR, like a really great SDR. So this was an exciting interview to listen to. And I'm excited to share some thoughts with our team to see like what we can do to elevate that function. Do you think the currently the junior salespeople are put into those roles just because it's unpleasant and it's kind of like hard work? Do you think that's the main reason or? That's a great question. I think it is. It's kind of like you're, you're out there, you've got these sometimes insane activity metrics you have to hit. You're working like a dog. You're having to come up with new ideas every day. That is really hard. And you have folks that have maybe been selling for a while, like they don't want to do that. Just pass me the lead. Let me go do my thing. Like it's a hard job. And I think it's definitely undervalued. But yeah, that, that's an interesting point. I need to think on that. <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> yeah, I think so too. I think because it's so numbers driven, oftentimes you need people going above and beyond, you know, and work crazy hours. And yeah, I think there's a lot of other industries as well, where those like hardworking roles that aren't very well paid, but require long working hours yeah. are typically occupied by younger people. Mm -hmm. I mean, the agency space comes to mind as well, you know, like yeah. we got all the ping pong tables to keep everybody in the office <laughs> oh, yeah. for as long as possible. But yeah, I do think there's opportunity to rethink that role and apply a new lens in order to attract different sort of talent. And yeah. I think Mark also mentioned that he changed the way he sources SDRs for his company and he looks more in regional areas with more mature SDRs who just want to have the flexibility, want to be able to work remotely and they still get paid really well. And especially if you don't work in a, in a metropolitan area, the cost of living is obviously lower. Mm -hmm. So a certain salary goes a long way as well. So I think those are big opportunities that come with also the kind of change in hybrid uh, work environment. So I think yeah. there's a whole new labor market in that space that you can tap into if you're looking to build an SDR team as well. That's so true. It the new hybrid world is is changing the game. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Hey, the other thing that Mark also touched on during our conversation and when I spoke to him afterwards was his perception sometimes in dealing with sales enablement leaders Ooh. in the region. And his perception was that sometimes there's a hesitancy in taking risks from sales enablement because they don't want to disrupt the status quo too much. They just want to basically supporting what's already there and what's proven and uh, don't really want to um, ask the hard questions. <laughs> what is your perception on that front? Like, is that something that you've seen in other organizations or in your past roles? Like without, obviously, you being in that position, but is that something that you see or? Meaning like 
is sales enablement trying to create too much rigidity in a role that requires like more agile creativity and and like testing and learning? Also that sales enablement is not driving risk-taking in a sense. Ah. That, for example, the organization looks at new places to hire SDRs or changes completely the model around the different career stages of an SDR, for example. You know, I think that was kind of the background. There's more of a focus on making what's in place work better rather than changing the status quo. Is that something that you've experienced? Yeah. So you and I have talked a bit about this. I've been lucky enough to work at a number of startups and smaller companies or companies that are going through changes fairly often. So I feel like I like to embrace the change and like, what can we do differently? How can we motivate our employees? How can we change the game? So I've had to be pretty agile with my approach and really leaning into leveraging tribal knowledge, leaning into team feedback, leaning into where managers need their team to go to create that motivation and excitement. Again, I'm making an assumption, but I think in bigger companies, there's probably a little bit more rigidity and less flexibility and like, hey, let's throw three more roles onto this career ladder and see what we can do. I had the luxury of doing that at my last company for our SDR team of like SDR one, two and three and yeah. things like that. So I, I think it depends on the organization as well as the enablement and, and how they're partnering with leadership. Yeah, that's right. I think not only in enablement, but in any sort of role. Yeah. There's always a certain tolerance for taking risk and mm -hmm. not only risk for the company, but obviously also for your own career. You know? Right, right. <laughs> and I guess the special case for sales enablement is because sales enablement has such a large stakeholder group, it is really difficult to be that disruptor and step on everybody's toes and telling people how it should be done. I love to do that. No. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Let's go for it. <laughs> you know. <laughs> no, but I think it's difficult considering that you're so reliant on other people contributing to your work that it's that it's really hard to actually disrupt the status quo because you don't want to burn bridges. You don't want to risk affecting relationships negatively. Yeah. So I think there's an element of that as well. Yeah. And I guess it also depends on the industry and the type of company, as you said. Yeah. There are certain industries that are way less tolerant towards risk-taking. And mm -hmm. funny enough, my wife actually used to work in HR for a airline and airlines are really notorious for not taking any risk at all, not only with their product, yeah. but also internally. So I'm not going to say which airline it was. Oh, but, uh, controversial. Yeah, that's right. That's right. But <laughs> yeah, I think it also depends on the sort of industry that you're dealing with. Big time. And something you mentioned, which is super important. So like not to rock the boat or upset anybody is stakeholder management. So gaining buy-in where you need it. Like if you're working with your SDR leader and they're like, we want to change the game, but here's the why. And again, like here's the potential business impact. We can retain these ama this amazing talent, grow them into the roles in the appropriate time frame. And then you get your CRO, you get your head of sales, you get, you need your CEO, you pull them in, but it's, you're creating that buy-in and alignment with the why. Just, just like we would do in a sale, right? Yeah. Is making sure, does, is everybody aligned? Do they understand why we're doing this? And again, there has to be the mindset in the organization. Can we be agile? Can we shake things up and test things out and see what's working. And again, if it's backed by data and if it's backed by the right stakeholders, you're more likely to, to push that through and not burn the bridges. But yeah, it's not always that easy, as we know. On that note, and speaking of what's working, <laughs> let's take a listen to the next clip from my interview with Melvina, Melvina Alsai. She is from the UK and she also runs a couple of podcasts that you guys might be familiar with. One is Stay Human, 
which has quite a following these days. And I was really excited to have her on the show. And we spoke about sales playbooks in particular and different things to consider when developing a sales playbook. Let's take a listen to the part of the interview. We want to be able to document what works and what we have proven to be successful in our organization. And we need to have it written down somewhere. I think it's as simple as that, right? It's very easy to overcomplicate the process of a sales playbook. People will think, oh, sales playbook, we have to write it. It's going to be super complicated. Where on earth do we even begin? But it can be simple. It can be really simple. You know, it boils down to the product. It boils down to understanding the industry. It boils down to understanding those key personas that we're selling into. And then it boils down to a lot of the internal processes that we have, right? When people don't follow process or they do something rogue, it can be frustrating, right? Things don't appear properly. We're not able to see what, what has happened in that particular account. So the way that I look at it is really creating that map that journey that's going to help everyone get to that end goal. All right. So sales playbooks, Melvina describes it as a, as a map that mm -hmm. helps everybody get to that sales effectiveness increase. Like my experience with sales playbooks is that it is often overcomplicated. And there's also something that she touched on that you don't have to try and capture every single aspect of the sales organization in there because that's recipe for things taking very long and things being very outdated very quickly. Yeah. What is your experience and your approach to sales playbooks typically? Yeah, I think trying to be as agile as possible. So I, you know, every sales leader I talk to, they're like, oh, well, it's the 70 page playbook, the 50 slide playbook. I was like, no, let's focus on what are the four meetings we need to run to close a deal? What are the basic motions that we need? You know, negotiation, discovery, and start with the, the basics launch what we have when we have it as they come out. The team gets excited about it, but you can plan for that 50, 70, 90 page playbook, but you have to make sure it's easy to absorb that we're not waiting for perfection. We're not waiting for this massive finished product. We are getting the teams what they need when they need it in a really simple, easily digestible format and being clear that it's not a training manual. And I think that's what people conflate it with. It's like every single moment. It's like, no, no, what are the key things we need to execute? What are the resources to support it? What are some great examples? Let's get it out in the field and let's iterate on it as we need to. Absolutely. The way I like to think about playbooks always is that it's essentially covering everything, all the basic knowledge that is needed to answer common questions, especially from people that have just started in their sales yeah. role that might not be familiar with the basics, right? And those sort of basic questions. That's typically what eats into sales enablement's time. Big time. That is required to really do things that are high value, that really shift the needle for sales and are really of strategic value. And yeah. I think the sales playbook is essentially covering like those time consuming conversations that are very basic and yeah. the answer is always the same for everybody in your organization. Yeah. It's those essential moments. And I like to joke like, a playbook should be so clear that if I handed it to a seller who just started at our company, they can basically close a deal here. They might not be doing a great job, but it's all of the tactical steps. We're going to talk about like tactical versus not a little bit later, but it should cover the most important moments. And then, of course, you build into it with new process releases, product releases, situations that arise. But it has to be flexible. It has to be fluid. I've definitely struggled with how to deliver 
the playbook and where to house it. And I know you and I were talking briefly about that as well. Like, is it in an Excel? Is it in a PowerPoint? Is it in a content management system? I have thoughts. I've tried them all, but I I would love to know your thoughts, Felix. Like, what's your go-to when you think about, I've got to get this playbook ready and deploy it to the field? Yeah, it has to be integrated somewhat into the current workflow of the salesperson or of the sales team in general. And there might be processes already that kind of lend themselves to being then connected to the sales playbook. And I think that's one consideration. And then the second consideration is just the ease of use. Mm -hmm. I think the way the information is being delivered, that's fairly straightforward. I think there's no reason to overcomplicate it. It should be written and you should have links to media if required, you know, like for example, for call recordings that show best practice or any content assets that are related or any other videos that help sellers dive deeper into a specific topic area. But I do think that the main challenge is just the accessibility and the ease of use. Yeah. I think there's different things, as you said, you can do like in terms of different content management systems, different sales enablement platforms. I do think it doesn't really matter what you use as long as it's integrated in in what salespeople already use, you know? So I think yeah. that ease of access is the one crucial factor that stops sales playbooks from gathering dusk in the, in the corner mm-hmm. <laughs> somewhere, yep, you know, yep. and, and nobody ever <laughs> accessing it. And on that front as well, it is helpful if you're able to actually see analytics around usage as well. Yes. Which gives you an indication of where the biggest information needs are, which then might also help you to maybe update your onboarding program to put a heavier emphasis on that part mm-hmm. and certain training modules. Or if you have separate communication around that, the fact that people oftentimes refer to a certain item means that it's not very clear for them in the first place. Right. So, yeah, they're kind of the two considerations, you know, like usage analytics and ease of access, I would say. Yeah. It has to be where the sellers are. And so it's not always easy without the tech to support it or the right integrations to support it. That's right. Have you used any platforms that you can recommend? So I just started using something. I'm using Highspot as our content management system and also as our playbook. And we're feeding that into People AI, which we just started using. So I don't have any feedback on that yet. But okay. with Highspot, we are able to build like really simple meetings. And I, I see Crystal threw a comment in to add videos and interactive simulations, which I love to do. So we can incorporate a certification into a meeting in a box play or gong calls, as you mentioned, or LMS content. So we can create this really easy to access experience that places all key information, sales assets, and best-in-class examples in line for the teams. We just launched it, like our first iteration of it this week. So far, so good. Our sales leaders were like shouting expletives, like good ones, about how easy it was. Our head of sales said, oh my God, my team is going to get so lazy. And I was like, great. Uh, (laughs) Job done. (laughs) Too funny. (laughs) Yeah. My job is done here. <laughs> exactly. I'm like, all right. <laughs> Too funny. I mean, a couple of ones that I've also used that are coming up on a regular basis is also your sales enablement platforms like Highspot or um, Seismic. Mm-hmm. Whereas I do think in some cases there's room for improvement to make those sort of uh, content pages a bit more user-friendly to build. That's kind of my experience. So yes. <laughs> in some cases, you can't even use basic HTML, you know, so which is pretty surprising considering that the platform should be built in HTML. Yeah. And then 
HubSpot as well. Mm, yes, I've heard that. Yeah, yeah. But again, like in terms of how you actually build it, it doesn't have to be any crazy multimedia experience. I think it can link to those uh, things, you know, like as Crystal said, like the interactive simulations and so on. But I think the core of it can literally be just a written document that's really easily searchable and really easily accessible. Yeah. No need to go too crazy on that front. Couldn't agree more. All right. So that was it for this month's insights. Again, a few great episodes there. So anybody who hasn't listened to those, definitely recommend tuning in if any of those topics resonated. So the next segment I want to talk to you about is our book reviews. And Ooh. we've got one each. It's <laughs> like we've been busy flipping through our books and adding to our bookcases. I love it. The first one that I read was really related to my business because I run a consultancy, FFWD. We're a sales enablement consultancy. And I selfishly uh, read a book called How Clients Buy. Nice. A Practical Guide to Business Development for Consulting and Professional Services by Tom McMakin and Doug Fletcher. And yeah, I briefly wanted to talk about this book because it, I thought it was the best book I've read so far in the professional services space from a sales perspective. Ooh. And I think it is also relevant not only to pure play professional services businesses, but also to any sort of software companies or tech companies that have a professional services arm attached to them, you know, because the way those sort of services are sold is not necessarily always connected to the platform itself, but there's also a business development going on specifically for those services. So what I really loved about this book was that it was very buyer-centric. So as the name says, how clients buy, it essentially used human-centered design to break down the decision-making uh, criteria for buyers of professional services, which I thought was absolutely brilliant, especially in the context of the discussions that we had recently around buyer acumen. And it was talking about those factors and it broke them down in really practical terms. It had really good anecdotes around people working in professional services and how they tackle those different areas. And yeah, absolutely brilliant book. I think there were there were a few things that i had not done yet for my business so those were great the majority you kind of do naturally you know like because mm -hmm. that's kind of like your like how you work out over time or how you learn from other people in that space right to do certain things but what i thought was absolutely brilliant in the book was um the way that decision making process or the decision making criteria were broken down and how it was explained. So absolutely recommend that book to anybody working in professional services or for software companies with professional services arms. Yeah. My only criticism of that book was that they spent a whole lot of time talking about why professional services generally don't sell well, you know, like the factors that make people in professional services not uh, sell very well. Those are factors like in the university courses, that teach those kind of disciplines, you know, like if it's law, accounting, or whatever it might be, or business even, mm -hmm. sales is not really, it's not really part of the curriculum, right? So um, sales is not really something that, or business development is not really something that is being talked about in the context. Everybody learns the technical skills, but nobody actually teaches you how to sell those technical skills. Right. And then the other, the other aspect as well is that sales is kind of a dirty word in professional services, you know? So yeah. 
which also comes down to the stereotype in a lot of people's minds. I know people who work in sales enablement in professional services companies, especially in, in the big accounting firms. And they tell me that as soon as they talk about sales being a discipline that's designed to be helping clients and, um, you know, rather than uh, convincing them to spend money, you're actually helping people to yeah. better their businesses and to uh, make better strategic decisions. As soon as that mind shift happens, people suddenly don't see sales as being such a dirty word, you know? So I think it's much easier to create that mind shift in professional services firms if you reposition sales and get rid of that stereotype that still exists in a lot of people's minds. So definitely recommend that book. From your experience, Devin, I can imagine you get haunted by uh, consultants and people wanting to sell you services all the time. Do you generally feel like people do a good job in trying to sell you those sort of services? Or So, no. And I think it comes down to, again, not truly understanding my role or what I'm able to, my buying ability in my role in L&D and enablement. And I get a lot of HR folks reaching out and different types of services that really don't align with my business or what's important to me. And I think it, it comes down to a lot of like, who is your buyer? Who are you reaching out to? Did you pull those buyer personas and like it said, L&D leader or whatever it may be? So yeah, very rarely do people do a great job. I think I flagged one of the really good SDR emails I got on our last chat, Felix. The Golden Girls. The Golden Girls. I have it saved. It's so good. <laughs> but generally speaking, I haven't had a great experience as a buyer. so. It's interesting. I definitely want to check this book out. Yeah, yeah, awesome. And you had another book as well that you wanted to share. What, what is that all about? I did. And I feel like it's the perfect segue from your book because it's about being a real person and not being like a robotic salesperson. So the book I read was called Sell Without Selling Out. And this is a sales book by Andy Paul. So Andy's been around for a bit. He has a number of books. This was my first Andy Paul book. He is a salesperson, author, strategist, you name it. Overall, I'm going to give it, give it a score because I haven't done a book report in a while. So I feel like I have to give it a good score. I'm going to give it an A. And as you know, I love sales methodology, strategy, best practices books. And I love this one especially because it really tees up how to build better relationships and be authentic and to move away from being like a salesperson who as I said before, is maybe just using the playbook and not thinking about building a relationship or the person they're talking to. So he really leans very heavily into, again, building the relationships, building rapport, being a person and helping the person that you're selling to. That said, the book doesn't really bring anything like dramatically net new to the table, right? It combines and consolidates a few best practices into a newish approach, which I definitely appreciate. The one thing that stood out to me right away, and I think like, I was listening to this as an audiobook when I was like driving to Arizona from Palm Springs. And then I switched to the paperback and then back to the audiobook. But I'm in the car and he's talking about not loving sales methodologies, templates, sales decks, resources, discovery questions. And as an enabler, my gut reaction was like, oh my God, like how are we supposed to create scale and consistency? This is crazy. But obviously, like I kept listening. And so he was not anti these frameworks. He really is frustrated that sellers are just using these and like checking the boxes, going through the medic checklist and not actually nurturing relationships, building trust. They're just kind of brute forcing their way into selling. So he really leans into the art and the science of selling. And he doesn't hate 
sales decks and resources. He thinks they're great. But again, he wants to make sure that we are focusing as sellers on being human beings, building real human connections and earning and developing trust. I don't know if you've had this experience, but I've definitely had leaders that I work with, like get in front of a room and say, you guys need to trust me. I'm building a trusted environment. I am, I am a trustworthy person. I'm like, oh, you're not. Okay. And so I think when, when we think about salespeople of like, I got you, trust me, but you're not doing anything to develop the relationship. He really leans very heavily into that and takes a stand on not being persuasive, but being influential. And so he really wants to get away from the idea that it's a seller's job to persuade someone to take action or purchase software. And as we know, if like someone persuades you to do something, you're maybe doing it because you feel like you have to, but you're not really on board and you might not know the why. And so he really wants our sellers to focus on influencing a buyer to make a decision that's right for them based on what they need. And the first thing I thought of was the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. It's not how to win friends and persuade people. And, that, and that's for a reason, right? Yeah. So yeah. two things I want to touch upon, because again, I thought this was an anti-framework book. It is not. Andy has four pillars that he leverages to keep people focused on building relationships, focusing on active listening, conducting meaningful discovery to learn, not to just check your discovery box. And a couple of things I just want to mention, too, that I really liked. So as I mentioned, I love sales books. I love methodologies. I also love like motivational speakers and all that good stuff. So in his book, I, I felt a lot of flavors of different thought leaders and, and sales leaders that I've read or listened to. So he talks a lot about vulnerability. So I'm thinking Brene Brown. He talks about transparency selling, which is Todd Capone, another great sales book, and really leans into the challenger sale. So, so much of this and even, you know, listening to your interview with Mike is all about really understanding who your buyer is, what they care about, what their organization cares about, and making sure that you are focused on learning about them, solving their problems, and coming to the table as a trusted partner. The final thing that he really leans into, and this is, I think, where I think most of the book is focused, is on trust and confidence, and really listening more than you speak, and listening to learn, not listening to respond, which we all know, like active listening is in everybody's competency maps, but like, do we do it? I'm guilty of like waiting to speak sometimes. I'm working on it, especially like in meetings where it's really crazy. So what he does that, that I really enjoyed and why I'd recommend this book to a salesperson or someone in enablement who's trying to learn a little bit more about empathy, being human and learning about people, it is he really just wants to help people. So let me dig into very quickly because I, I know we're, we have a lot more to cover. So the four pillars that Andy talks about are connection, curiosity, understanding, and generosity. And all of these things together, again, allow us to really focus on our buyers, what matters to them, what they care about, and building the relationship. So I'm going to summarize quickly. Treat buyers like people. They are human beings. They are not mythical creatures. They are not trolls under the bridge. We don't have to decode their riddles to sell to them. Buyers want help. They know what they want and they want to buy from somebody who they trust. And that's that's the moral of the story. So I loved this book, as I said a few times. Again, you're not going to find anything dramatically net new, but I think that's the case for so many of these selling books and these methodology books. But I think it's a great read. It repositions the way we think about engaging our customers and the way we engage the humans that we talk to every day. Yeah, that's awesome. What you said about the sales leader standing in front of his team and said, oh, yeah, just trust me. I think 
Oh, yeah. There's two things you should never say to people. You should trust me or I'm cool because those are two things that you have to prove through your behavior, right? And you verbalizing it is often a reason to do the opposite. Yeah. I think, as you said, the sort of behaviors that he breaks down and that he recommends, those are absolutely crucial to building trust because ultimately sales should help buyers to make the best possible decisions for their business as quickly as possible, right? And doing those things or following those pillars that he mentioned, I think achieves that. So I think that's a great way to describe it. And yeah, not making people try and trust you because you want their money, but, you know, make them trust you because you uh, want to help them, I think is the safest way to uh, really become a high performing and successful seller. Yeah. And the big thing too is like talk less. And we know this from like, you know, all of our call recording software and you should be speaking, you know, less than 50% of the time or 60% of the time. Yeah. But we don't do that. And I think it's really important to keep asking questions. He talks about like how to layer questions for effectiveness and really leaning into what the customer wants. People want to talk about themselves, especially a buyer or a customer. Like I buy a lot of software. I talk to a lot of vendors and I want them to listen to me and be like, I'm going to tell you exactly what I want. That's right. Don't try to push me in a different direction. I, I had a salesperson once demoing it, you know, some Salesforce type of tool. And they're like, but do you see the value? Do you see the value? Do you understand it? It's really valuable. I'm like, this is not how this conversation should be going right now. And so it's really about like, you're talking to a person. If you ask them too many questions, you're not going to scare them off. You're going to scare them off if you don't let them speak and if you don't engage with them. So. That's right. Anyway, I loved it. <laughs> That's awesome. So I'll definitely check it out. And uh, we had a couple of comments as well coming through. Kelly uh, said they also adopted Highspot. So referring to our conversation around sales books earlier. And we just need to reinforce where the assets live. We have a unique culture that leverages a handbook as our SSOT. And the CMS offers far more discoverability. That's great. Yeah, exactly what we're talking about. So making it accessible and really easy to browse through um, is really crucial. The other comment that we also had was from Georgia Watson. Hey, Georgia, how's it going? Thanks for joining again. She said, agree, services can be a different cell. Products or services, anything we build as enablers needs to keep our virus as central. Absolutely. And again, I think how clients buy is a brilliant resource to actually gain that understanding and might stop people who have previously been in a product-focused sales or sales enablement role to actually making that move into professional services. I think this book really helps you to uh, readjust your thinking and fine-tune your, your thinking around that. Kelly also said, will you share these resources here or elsewhere? These are great, especially interested in this book. Absolutely, Kelly. We will share links to the recording of this live stream and also to the podcast version which then also includes in the show notes all the different links that we talked about today. But I will make sure to also share those links in the chat of this live stream page as well, if you want to refer to it earlier. So everybody who's listening, please make sure to drop in your comments if you want to be part of the conversation. We've got a couple of more things to cover. One is a report that's come out that I found quite interesting, especially a couple of data points. So I just share my screen. This report here was from a Lego state of sales onboarding. So they're obviously a onboarding platform, I think. And they have a whole bunch of data points here. They surveyed uh, 300 people in the sales and sales enablement space. 
And a bunch of data points in this section here I found really interesting, which was the finding number six, onboarding is still a costly, lengthy, and stressful process. Mm -hmm. And says here 50% of companies begin the onboarding process before a new hire's first day of the job, which I found quite interesting because I think that also plays into the notion that onboarding is not necessarily that classroom environment or that structured process, but it's also the way you welcome a person into the company. And I've certainly seen that part as best practice in the past where the brief from management was always to shower new hires with attention even before they started their new role. And I think that's definitely helpful to take the edge out of the first day of the starter and really make sure that they feel a certain degree of familiarity before they already start, before they start their job. So that one I found quite interesting that 50% uh, of companies do that apparently. Mm -hmm. The, on average, the typical onboarding sales process takes 38 days, which is also interesting. And I really wonder if that also considers any sort of coaching that's being done on an ongoing basis. I hope it doesn't <laughs> because that would be quite, uh, and not really setting people up for success. The average cost of uh, to onboard a new sales employee is just under $10,000, which is also interesting, especially if you think about, you know, if you're a sales leader, about the PNL and uh, the sort of cost of hires, in addition to sort of the recruitment costs and the time spent uh, throughout the recruitment process. It's interesting to see a number put on that. And the other couple of interesting data points I thought also was nearly half of sales leaders say onboarding has been so stressful on some hires that they quit. <laughs> that really blew my mind. I think there's really something seriously wrong with your onboarding process if it makes people quit. I want to unpack that one. Like what? Yeah, that's right. I want to delve deeper into that. So if anybody from Lego is uh, listening, please enlighten us. I think that's pretty shocking. If that's really a representation of what's happening out there, I think there's a lot of potential for sales enablement to add value. Or if it's caused by somebody <laughs> from sales enablement, I hope they uh -oh. pick up the game and stop people from leaving because of that onboarding process. And 26% of sales leaders say onboarding has been so stressful on some hires that they cried. Oh my God. <laughs> that made me so sad. I saw that. I was like, what company is doing this and what's going on? <laughs> that's right. That's right. That definitely sounds some sort of crazy boot camp that includes yelling as well. So yeah, I think some, some really interesting data points. I do think considering that the sample size is 300, I think if they actually picked people that really had those uh, sort of positions that are representative of people involved in those onboarding processes, that that would be somewhat representative. So I thought that was really interesting. What's your experience from the onboarding side of things? Are those things you've seen in the past? Thankfully, no. This section in particular, like I took a screenshot of this because I was like, I can't believe this. And honestly, like onboarding to your point is it's warm and fuzzy. It's welcoming you to the company, but it's also very purposeful. And, and to call back to some of Mike's work, like I love his idea of, you know, how do you chunk layer and sequence content so that it's enough for your person to absorb, to make them effective in role, to give them just enough to accomplish what they need to accomplish, but not to overwhelm them. And personally, we, and not personally, I think most of my enabler friends on the phone here are doing this as well, but we have set milestones for the first 90 days. What's expected of you in role? What's expected of you in your onboarding process? And making sure that everything that new hire is doing is purposeful. So if you're completing an elevator pitch certification, what does that unlock for you in an on-the-job responsibility? Does that unlock your territory? Does that unlock your access to technology? And so we 
try to structure it so that it's not overwhelming because onboarding is an experience. As we know, it's not a moment. And I think for some of these folks, I feel like you said it while we were chatting. Did they go through like a one week boot camp and then they're like, all right, get to it. We're hit your numbers. What's going on? So I think it's really thinking about the people. What do we need to do to make them effective? How do we create transparency and like what's expected of you? What are we going to give to you? What do you need to do? But making sure that we're not completely bombarding them and making them feel like I have to do this and build out my pipeline and do all of these things. So I think it's organizational alignment around structure. It's creating clarity and transparency through milestones, purposeful programming. And again, making sure that you're supporting that new hire beyond the first 30 days. There's so much more from reinforcement, coaching, sustained knowledge that we have to think about. We have the luxury at my company, like L&D and enablement both report through me in the same function. So we have our you know, new hire orientation, which starts pre-hire. You get your swag bag, you get your email, IT sets you up. And so you go through that program and then there's a nice transition into your role-based onboarding if you're in sales or in the revenue organization. Absolutely. I think, especially at the data point around people crying, I think, oh my God. <laughs> I mean, people crying that's in any situation is typically a indication that they feel overwhelmed, right? And I think nobody should be overwhelmed by the onboarding process, right? It's all about building on what the person brings to the table yeah, and basically utilizing that if you have a sound hiring process and an ideal employee profile exactly. that you go for knowing that the person has a certain skill set and then building on that skill set to make that applicable to the company and then also setting them up for success. So I think if the onboarding process is not designed to set people up for success, what are we doing, right? Yeah. It's not there to catch people out and to make them overwhelmed. It's about building on their capabilities and then making that applicable to the company. So I think very interesting, very shocking as well. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we use our onboarding as like a selling tool for candidates of like, we are going to support you. This is like a value add. It will not make you cry. <laughs> it should right. not do that. <laughs> Maybe you should add that to your job ads moving forward. You know, <laughs> we one of the perks, you won't cry. We won't make you cry. We'll try not to. That's right. That's right. <laughs> cool. So the last item that we have on the agenda for today is the social media bus and there was a conversation happening. This was a conversation around sales methodology. So what was that all about, Devin? So this one was interesting and it actually ties really nicely into sell without selling out. It's actually almost the same exact concept. So I stopped on the, this LinkedIn post in particular because I usually do when I see medic in anyone's post because I love medic and I'm learning a lot about it. And also when there are a lot of comments. So I was like, let me check this one out. There are a lot of questions and comments. And essentially, this, this post is designed to be like an attention grabber saying that methodologies like Medic and Spin, they're killing your deals. And the way to save your deals is to enjoy this new selling methodology from a person called Skip Miller. And so I also was intrigued by this because I inherited a sales team a while back that was trained using uh, one of the Skip Miller approaches called proactive selling. And so, again, this is, I think, a new approach from him focused on curiosity. So building, selling through curiosity, not, not that methodology, but again, a, a new take on that. And so I, I just like, I had to lean into this because it was, again, eye-catching, kind of poo-pooing some of the tried and true qualification methodologies, sales methodologies, and so on. And it conflated a few of those things and equated them to kind of being like, these are the same things and it's killing your deal. But the reason why I stopped, as I mentioned, so I had been a part of a company that used proactive selling, which is, again, some tactical steps for building relationships, closing deals. 
But the challenge I had with that was all of the steps that were pretty standard in a typical like selling cycle, like a mutual engagement plan, decision process, all of those things were masked with new names. So like you had your buyers were ATLs, OTLs, BTLs, your mutual action plans were trains. And so like it was this layer of like I had to have a glossary to understand some basic terms that I already knew as a, a seasoned enabler or a seasoned salesperson. So I struggled with that because, you know, this post is calling out the complexities or lack of personalization in some of these tried and true approaches. So again, I, I had a key in on that. And, and again, no negativity towards Skip Miller. I think there's nuggets of goodness in that approach as well. But I thought this was interesting. And the comments called out exactly what we talked about of like, there's a place for these frameworks, but it's layering the art on top of it. And there is a right way to leverage these approaches. So again, it, it caught my attention for those three factors. And I was curious to see, Felix, if you took a look, what you thought about this and if there were any comments in the thread that called out to you. Yeah, I mean, I thought it was quite interesting. <laughs> like some people were specifically really often talk about those sort of frameworks in their LinkedIn posts. Yeah. Here, like Aaron Evans, for example. Yeah. You know, they obviously uh, were taken aback a bit by that, but <laughs> Thibault is obviously pushing some buttons here. Yeah, which was <laughs> smart. Like we all clicked on the post. I'm like, now I want to know more. So like mission accomplished. <laughs> That's right. So you can see here down here, Felix liked this and Devin likes this as well. That's right. <laughs> and no, I think um, as always, it really depends on your individual situation, you know, like within your company. And I guess the bigger the company, the more rigid you have to be, the more standardized you have to do things because you can't rely on sellers winging it in each case. Right. <laughs> so I think those sort of soft skills that people bring to the table that don't treat buyers just as a number, I think those are things you should hire for in each case. Mm -hmm. But I think it is difficult for companies to completely let go of those methodologies, especially if it's a large sales force, you know, like you yeah. need some structure around the process and you can't just trust people doing the right thing and, you know, they're just developing their own approach. I think treat buyers like people. I think this is something that you should do and you should also hire for. Yeah. But at the end of the day, treating buyers like people is not a sound sales strategy, right? So uh, <laughs> exactly, <laughs> you might increase the chance of a deal, but you still need to do things like communicate the value and qualify them and all those things. Exactly. So I think it's as always not black and white. Yeah. I think you need to consider both sides. Again, like I'm also not poo-pooing what is being talked about right. here. I'm a fan of Skip Miller. I think he has some great content. He was actually on the State of Sales Enablement podcast before as well. And yeah. Hilarious guy. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. I think <laughs> there's some truth in here. And, but I wouldn't say it's black and white like that. You need a mix of both. Exactly. It's the art and the science. I'm sure there's a better way to say that, but it's like, you need both. You have to be human. The image of like the aggressive salesperson is is over. That's right. That's not the, the world we live in anymore. And so it's understanding where, where to push, where to pull back and, and the skills you need to build to really build those relationships. Yeah. Awesome. On that note, uh, on that positive note, <laughs> brings us to the end of the show. Devin, thank you so much for joining once again. It's been great to uh, have you on as a co-host. Do you have any parting thoughts that you want to share with our audience? Oh, treat your buyers like humans, Felix. That's my parting thought. Last time you recommended a Netflix show, so I can recommend a show as well. Go for it. <laughs> you know I love true crime. So The Staircase yep. on HBO. Uh, good watch. I saw the preview for that one. Yes. It looks good. It looks very good. Very dark. <laughs>
my parting thoughts are actually related to uh, my business and also the podcast. So just for FFWD, that's my consulting business. We are expanding our network of consultants. So if you are a sales enabler and listening to this and you want to work in a freelance capacity and being involved in engagements that we run with our clients. So we are essentially an outsourced sales enablement function and we develop strategies and increase capacity of sales enablement teams. So if that sounds like you, please reach out to me, Felix Kruger on LinkedIn, and let's have a chat about how you can get involved. Also from a podcast perspective, we're also look, always looking for new guests. So I just want to emphasize if you reach out about appearing on a podcast, please make sure that you have a topic in mind. This is really important. Like we always want to cover a specific topic in our interviews. So always looking for new guests. So I'm curious to meet you if you have a, a sales enablement related topic that you want to talk about on a podcast as well. Love it. So Devin, again, thank you so much for joining. Uh, that's it for this month in sales enablement, the May edition. I'm looking forward to next month already. Me too. I'm sure we'll have an action-packed agenda again. <laughs> and everybody stay safe and I will speak to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye. Next time on The State of Sales Enablement. The biggest problem I try and solve for is to answer that so what question. Bought a Peloton. I'm a Peloton person now. Getting up on that treadmill is literally 97% of the battle. We can you know, use that same knowledge with our sellers. We just gotta get them there. It's all about that catalyst to engage them. Considering the recent budget cuts in the enablement space, it is no surprise that in a recent LinkedIn poll, 56% of enablers stated that they plan to increase their ability to create business impact in 2023. I've teamed up with sales enablement legend Mike Kunkel to create a webinar that outlines proven approaches to maximizing enablement's business impact. To watch the seven steps to maximizing enablement's business impact, visit goffwd.com slash impact. That's goffwd.com slash I-M-P-A-C-T.